Hello and welcome to the Mindfulness for Learning podcast, where we discuss mental health and well-being in education and family life with a variety of interesting people. Episode 9 and I talk to the wonderful Claire Kelly. Claire has been practicing mindfulness for 16 years. When she reached breaking point, she knew she had to make changes to her very stressful life as a secondary school teacher. She continued to teach, but began to practice mindfulness and it changed how she approached everything. She has gone on to work for the well-known Mindfulness in Schools project as the Head of Curricula and Teaching Development. Here she creates content to support their work, which offers training to educators on how to practice and teach mindfulness to the children in their care. So when it's seen as just another thing they have to do, it does become a box-ticking exercise and it might be something that happens once a week or once a term or once a year. You know, some schools are, you know, they'll have a well-being week. Uh, you know, when kids can go and do a yoga class at lunchtime or, you know, go and do mindful colouring in, whatever that is. <laughs> um, or they might do, you know, or a school might get somebody who will just lead a breathing exercise once a week in an assembly or something. And while they're done with great intention, it's not going to make any difference at all. She is also a teaching partner at the Oxford Mindfulness Centre, which offers courses in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for life, which we mentioned in the episode as MBCTL, and mindfulness teacher training. It was in 2019 that I was lucky enough to first meet Claire. She was my tutor on an eight-week foundation course. It was the course that introduced me to mindfulness and I never looked back, so in many ways I have her to thank for the creation of Mindfulness for Learning. I felt honoured that she agreed to talk to me about her journey into mindfulness and how it can make a difference to children and teachers that she meets. So here she is, discussing mindfulness in education. It's Claire Kelly. Hello Claire, thank you so much for coming to speak to me. It's a pleasure. It's lovely to talk to you, Sophie. It is really lovely to have you on here and quite a significant moment because... You were the reason that I got into mindfulness. So my first experience of mindfulness. Yeah, exactly. It's your fault. Um, (laughs) What a wonderful journey it's been so far. It was April 2019. I looked back today. Um, It feels like so much longer ago because it's had such a profound effect on my life. Um, So it's really lovely that you could be part of this new venture that I'm on, including the mindfulness. So that's really nice. Um, You are the director of curricula and teacher development at the at MISP, Mindfulness in Schools Project, mm-hmm. and a teaching partner at the Oxford Mindfulness Centre now. Yeah, that's right. But um, can you tell us a bit about your life pre-mindfulness? What did it look like? Um, probably quite, quite familiar to lots of people. I was, um, well, actually, I should say, first of all, I did dabble in a bit of mindfulness as young as... Oh, I don't know about 80 when I first went to university right um, and I just read some books and did you know got, got some audio recordings and tried it but like most people um I didn't keep doing it I, I gave up quite quickly because I got busy doing other things yeah and then you know left university got a job uh, and then just started to um work uh, like crazy um and what I now recognize as what we might call driven doing mode Mm. Was, was my life really just kind of on a treadmill knowing I was working flat out not quite sure how to get off yeah um and knowing that actually the only person that was pushing me that hard was me nobody else was involved um so there was kind of a wake-up moment for me I was a teacher for a very long time and I was 
uh, there was one kind of period in my life when I was teaching that I started to feel really ill. Um, and my, I won't go into the grisly detail, but my mm. hair started falling out. If I got little cuts, especially my fingers, like paper cuts and things, they would get infected. My fingernails were falling out. It was pretty wow. grim. Um, and I realised it was because my immune system was shutting down. Mm. Um, and I subsequently found out that's a kind of a classic sign of stress and anxiety and a body just in exhaustion. So um, I thought, oh, well, I could go and get some pills from the doctor. But given I kind of know what this is, um, I should really do something else. And I thought, I, I know, I'll go back to some mindfulness. Uh, and quite quickly started to feel physically better. Mm. But uh, more than that, noticed I had some more mental space in my day. Uh, and at that point, I had a, a one-year-old and a four-year-old and realised I was actually just kind of showing up for them. <laughs> yeah. More, so know, actually being present for them. Was that, a, as well as taking on the mindfulness, what, did you make a change in your work? Or did you, did you just adopt the mindfulness and that kind of helped you manage everything else? Or did you make changes elsewhere in your life? Uh, I carried on with the job, um, but I did do it differently. Mm. And I was just one of the things that people often talk about when they're doing mindfulness is that you notice choices you, you didn't realize were there before. And those choices might be um, whether or not to react to something that's causing you difficulty. You know, that might be a tricky colleague or um, somebody cutting you up in traffic or a negative thought about yourself and realizing that actually you do have choices around yeah. that. You just need to have the skills to be able to notice them and then you know strategies for creating a little bit of space mm. between between what might have been a very instinctive response or re reaction we call it um, and something that's just more um skillful yeah it's uh, funny the first time that happens i think when you start practicing mindfulness mm. um you, you, sometimes at the beginning you can feel like oh maybe this isn't working for me or you become quite frustrated yeah. but i remember the moment that i i realized that this has changed my life and I was waiting for a bus I'd walked to the bus stop in the rain I didn't bring my umbrella yeah the bus drove straight past me and I kind of shrugged my shoulders and just stood and just oh and I and I surprised <laughs> myself when I did it I I I, I was like oh my I that's a really lovely response and it meant that the rest of my day was fine and, um, and what and out of interest what mm. would have been your usual reaction to that situation or that kind of situation just rage I think yeah. <laughs> just rage at the world for doing that to me kind yeah. of you know not taking responsibility of that response yeah um yeah it's, and it's uh, interesting yeah. isn't it? it's that what I love is that image of I'm sure you know this the the, the kind of idea of two arrows Mm. so there's the difficulty that's always going to come your way because life's like that it throws you difficult situations that are challenging and that's the first arrow but what humans are really good at is bringing all the other stuff with it which is the yeah. second arrow so in your situation it's like why me why why didn't I leave yeah. home earlier what's wrong with that driver why is the world such a rubbish place you yeah. know and all that all the other thinking that goes with um those are those moments yeah and you, I just really didn't need that and it, it, yeah. I was able to kind of go on without it which like you say it's understanding that that is a choice yeah um it's not a, it's always kind of a big moment. but, but, but yeah. noticing that sometimes there is a choice and and sometimes there shouldn't be because sometimes it might be a difficulty that's actually really dangerous and you do need to react quickly sure. yeah um, but the, the skill is in noticing when it's that kind of situation or actually just one where 
you just bring that second arrow and it makes your life just that little bit worse as a result of it yeah yeah that's interesting so who was it who introduced you to mindfulness originally can you did you just uh, kind of know books, about it yeah books, books lots of books there's loads of books out there and lots of people read them um but actually it's it's really the doing of it so I enrolled I enrolled in um, an eight-week mindfulness course um, called mindfulness-based stress reduction MBSR mm. which is a kind of very well researched and well-known type of course yeah um and that was taught by somebody called Michael Chaskelson who's go- gone on to do great work about mindfulness in the workplace um and then I just wanted to keep doing more so I sort of started to develop my own personal practice i started to collect other forms of training yeah. <laughs> as you do yeah eventually trained to teach adults and mindfulness and and off off I went really so when what what point did you did you, did you taught in secondary school so you no yeah. longer do that no but I work with an organization who train uh, teachers and those working in educational mm. youth-based settings to teach mindfulness to their students so you've stayed with children and teaching yeah yeah, yeah. So I've gone into schools and taught some of this stuff, but more often than not, I'm training others to do that. Yeah. And and how did you find out about um, the Mindfulness in Schools project? Uh, there was a conversation probably about 2010 mm. with a friend of mine, actually, who I was at university with called Chris Cullen, who at the time was setting up um, uh, this, this thing called Mindfulness in Schools project with, with a friend and colleague of his called Richard Burnett. And... Um, and he says, well, listen, you know, if you've, if you've kind of got your own practice going and, and you're working in a school's context, you know, you should come and find out more about this and introduce me to their dot .b curriculum, with, which they just developed, which is for secondary school students. Yeah. Um, and from there, just kind of took off, really. You know, I trained to teach dot .b, so that's for 11 to 18-year-olds, um, and then helped to set up and develop pause B, which is for primary school children, 7 to 11 um and since then i've been helping to develop content and and training for people to teach for adults young people children yeah so did you originally use the um the training with with your secondary pupils before you kind of moved on to kind of working in a variety of schools did you you use it at your school that you were working at yes i did yeah, yeah. dot b yeah yeah, so that was the 11 to 18-year-olds. Yes, exactly. And how long did you do that in your school before you kind of pulled away from that specific area and then worked with lots of different schools and developing the primary curriculum? Um, I probably taught that for about three years. Um, and But but at that stage then I joined Mindfulness in Schools Project, so was then picking up on the training side of things. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and what and what's been the biggest challenge for... For the Mindfulness in Schools project, what have you found really difficult to kind of overcome? Oh, um, I have to say the, the, the pandemic is right up there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a difficult one. <laughs> like it is for many people. In that we, um, you know, all our training and work had been face-to-face in, in rooms and training rooms before that. Yeah. And suddenly overnight that all disappeared. Um, and we very quickly had to move online, which we never thought we would do, but actually have discovered, like lots of people, that there's great, you know, there's some challenges, but there's also some wonderful opportunities training online. 
Yeah, it's if really opened the door for many people, hasn't it? People yeah. who couldn't access these things before can. Exactly. It's just so accessible now. Absolutely, accessibility. Um, you know, in a way, it's more intimate because you've got. You know, when you're in a training room and you've got large groups of people, so we might train twenty, thirty people at a time. Mm. And they're all sitting on the other side of the room from you. And in, on Zoom, you can see everybody's faces and you can put it on speaker view and see people really clearly. And it's just really lovely. And like I say, yeah, just we've, we've had loads of uh, internationally, actually, we've had more and more people joining our training. Yeah, that's that's a lovely part of the training because I'm doing the MBCTL at the moment. Yeah. And there's people across the world, which is just so lovely. Yeah. It kind of yeah. brings everyone so close together. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. It is really nice. So are you now going back to in-person training? Not yet, no. no. Because of the uncertainty, we've decided to hang on until Christmas. Yeah. Um, and then we'll make a decision. And and I think we will do some face-to-face live training, but, but we're going to carry on with, with online as well. Mm. What yeah. do you miss about in-person training? Um... Do you know the one thing you don't get is the is the conversations around the coffee table. Yeah, you know, just really getting to know people in the breaks, just talking, sharing ideas. Um, that's that's the bit that I miss most, and and the chances I used to have to travel and go to lots of really interesting places. Yeah, to do lots of training in schools for teachers, so teachers will will come from the area and come into a school, so you get to see the schools in action. And yeah, that's yeah, I really that lovely. Too. And it's, you know, you're talking about the kind of coffee breaks and things. That's the the downside. And there's, you know, there are positives to this, but the, the ability to turn our screens off, you know, it's quite tempting sometimes, mm. isn't it? Just to kind of turn it off and not get involved in that conversation. But when mm. you're in that room, you're encouraged to. And it's it's a good thing, I think, to have yeah. that communication with each other. Yeah, it's all about connection. Yeah, mm. yeah. What has been a, a breakthrough moment for the Mindfulness in Schools project? Like some An area to celebrate? Um, it's been a, rather than a moment, it's been a gradual progression to developing a really broad sense of community. So to begin with, MISP was, you know, there were about three of us running it and we were running maybe five or six training courses a year. And we've now developed to running about 100 events per year. Um, wow. and more recently have really worked hard to introduce ongoing support and training for people. So they don't just come and train to teach something and then we never see them again. They come back and we have teacher support sessions, teaching skills, workshops, um, meeting the expert sessions where we get people to come in and talk about particular themes in education. Yeah. Um, you know, teaching surgeries. And, and there's just a real sense of people wanting to be part of a community in fact a really good example of that was um through the first lockdown we started daily sits live online and anybody could come you know everybody's welcome whether they trained with us or not yeah and that was at 11 o'clock every morning um and people were coming from all over the world i mean some people were getting up in the middle of the night to join us that's so (laughs) wonderful 3 a.m and there they were sitting And it's, again, it's all about connection. Just I suppose, So the big learning for us there was that people really want to be connected. Yeah. And they really want to yeah, have this sense of community. So that's been the great learning and that's ongoing for us now. We're just yeah. doing more and more. Yeah, that's really lovely. I've kind of seen how it's grown. Like you say, you've got more and more on offer. Um, and it's lovely because it's including everyone. You know, the teacher retreat days, I see. I think you've got one on Sunday, have you? 
teacher um, retreat day it looks amazing the, yeah we had one we had one a couple of weeks ago we okay. another one in june, june. yeah yeah so they look amazing and just such yeah. a wonderful thing for teachers to be able to do um, yeah. And then you've got the, I, I attended the Teaching Mindfully conference last year and I think you've got oh. another one coming up, which I can't make and I'm so upset, oh. <laughs> but um, oh, I will definitely come to the next one. But yeah, um, yeah that, it was really, really wonderful to kind of hear these amazing speakers share all their knowledge and experience and just really enables teachers to to kind of bring mindfulness into their classroom, but just not as a one-off. I think that's the real difference with um, MISP is that it's, it really wants you to embed it in everything you're doing and really yeah. supports you to do that. And I think that makes it really stand out from every, everywhere else, um, makes oh, well, it sustainable. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's I think it's also, you know, I think lots of people come and train with us because they want to teach mindfulness to young people, forgetting that it's not so much what you teach them as how you are with them that really makes the difference. Yeah. You know, how you are in that classroom with them, what you're modelling for them, how you relate to them you know are you really listening when they're talking to you uh, do you greet them by name and really acknowledge that they're there and they're valued do you notice if you're being a bit reactive if you know if a student is pressing your buttons a bit um can you notice a choice around that all of that stuff actually i think is more important than teaching them mindfulness mm. because you are modeling mindfulness for them and you are you know if you think back to when you know maybe a teacher or an adult who really made a difference to you when you were younger mm. and you just reflect on the qualities of that person what was it they had yeah and it wasn't that it you know they taught you how to calm down or you know they taught you how to do algebra it was it's usually things like you know well they they really listened to you or they had your back yeah. or they valued you for who you were or they made learning fun or you know all of those sorts of things. And those are the kind of qualities, I think, that can make such a difference and that you can develop through learning a bit of mindfulness as well as lots of other things as well. Yeah, it's one of the, the skills, isn't it, that we need to use to be able to do all the things that you've said. Yeah. But I think it's not a one-off discrete lesson. You don't learn mindfulness no. and then you kind of go back to teaching. It's just, it's part, it's a lifestyle, isn't it? Yeah, you, you, you teach, you learn to teach mindfully. Absolutely, yeah. As opposed to teaching mindfulness. yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you've recently brought in DOTS, which is the mm -hmm. training course for three to six-year-olds now, yeah. um, which was so exciting when I heard about that because I am uh, all about the EYFS. I was yeah. kind of, I specialised yeah. in that area, so I was yeah, so excited yeah, yeah. because I think quite often with workshops or um, kind of teaching programmes, you're sat in the staff room and someone might say, oh, we've got this company coming in to work with us, and they say, oh, it's not for the EYFS though. And I, I'm like, oh, we're always left out because, you know, some, it's a quite a specialist area to be able to it approach is. children of that age. Um, yeah. So how is it going and, and how do we approach mindfulness with the youngest of children? Um, it's going really, really well. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's been a long time coming. People have been saying, you know, when, when's your programme for early years and when's it coming out? And we've been going, oh, soon, soon. But it's just taken such a long time to develop. My colleague, Ben Chalwin, is has done amazing work because he's a he's a kind of EYFS specialist as well yeah um and what and what we decided early on was that, that you can't expect three to six year olds to sit down for extended periods of time in silence yeah. <laughs> doing mindfulness <laughs> practice so the, the course is really it's it's designed to be taught by a classroom teacher yeah um 
and they will introduce a theme each week and then throughout the week they do little short practices around it or exercises or games around that theme so a classic theme in early on in mindfulness training is around attention and learning about how the mind wanders and so there are some little games they can play with noticing that and um, there's a little character called Dot who goes on a little journey through this is about 30 of these little themes going on um, so yeah it's lovely and then also part of the training allows you as the classroom teacher to then bring on board another teacher who might be working with your class as well it might be a teaching assistant or another teacher mm. um, and they can help keep the practices going even if you're not available every day to, to take them through them so is it a daily practice yeah well it's more it's more than that it's when it you know whenever yeah. there's a moment really whenever yeah. there's an opportunity and it might be just after lunch or it mm. might be as they're sitting and waiting in assembly or it might be something else you know so you just drop it in wherever it's useful rather than it being something you do once a day that's wonderful and it what are the benefits of starting so young it, you know are there does it make a massive difference do you think if we start at this age yes I think it does mm. um people said oh you know why 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 start so early surely children are like the ultimate mindfulness individuals in that mm. they're constantly in the present moment and they're constantly observing what's going on around them with beginner's mind this idea of seeing things for the first time yeah um, and that's kind of true but also these are lifelong skills so once you learn them you can't unlearn them yeah and you can get better at doing them by practicing them but the fact is you know um well you see it you see it happening you see little ones like three four five-year-olds You've learnt, um, there's a little thing you can do called finger breathing, mm. where you follow your breath and you count the breaths using your fingers and so on. Um, and they know that what they're for. And you see them just on, off on their own, maybe before they're about to do something in assembly or something that's made them a bit nervous. Mm. And they'll just sit down and start finger breathing on their own. Oh, that's amazing. So they're kind of pulling them out of the bag when they need them. Um, yeah. And, and you just take, take that forward, you know, you take that learning forward. They're so open at that age, aren't they, I think? Yeah. They, they, they're willing to give everything a go and really Absolutely. kind of get involved. So it's, it's, it's like learning a new language, isn't it? Like you say, if they've got that foundation, they can only build on it from there. Nothing... Absolutely. Yeah. And they're so creative as well in what they do, you know. So there's, it's about giving them the space to experiment and do it for a way that works for them as well. Mm. So, you know, you'll while you might say right now sit up nice and tall and you know just focus a little bit on your breathing and um and then they suddenly bend over they fold forward and mm. you'll probably find the reason they've done that is because they can feel their breath more effectively that way so it's it's just allowing them to play with it it's all about being playful yeah and I think quite often teachers including myself might struggle with that letting go of yeah. everything not being uniformed or yeah. you know not everyone sat still or doing mindfulness how you imagine that they do it it's yes. like allowing them to kind of put their their personality onto it and their absolutely. thoughts absolutely yeah. and it's why also we we say if you're going to come and train to teach this stuff you've got to have your own mindfulness practice first yeah. so that you can you know you can recognize your own habits around teaching and, and in life more generally as well yeah um, do you have many people who I mean do you have to do the it's I think I when I did it because I did the dot foundations but I don't think 
that exists anymore, does it? Is it called something else? It, it, well, it does. Dot B Foundations is a course that can be taught by people who go into a school or, or offer it online. Yeah. Um, Dot Begin is the Mindfulness in Schools Project Home version of that, which right. is running all the time. You've basically got a Dot Begin course starting every couple of weeks. And teachers have to do that before they can do the training to teach their class? Or any or any other recognised eight-week mindfulness right. programme. So it might be MBSR, it might be MBCT, it might be Breathworks, there's a whole range of them and if people are interested we can we can steer you in the right direction yeah and the, those eight week programs are they are so wonderful and I I remember when I first well we when we first did our first eight week and now I'm on another eight week <laughs> but I'm always surprised about how how much there is to learn because I think I went into it thinking well mindfulness is I kind of know everything there is to know I <laughs> kind of you know, but as you explore, it kind of opens up more and more things and you think, oh, my goodness, there's so much depth to everything. And when you yeah. kind of start unraveling it, it really does. You, it makes you realise how important it is for the, for the teachers to to do that eight weeks before they start teaching it. Yeah. And you never stop learning. Mm. You know? yeah. What's really lovely is just the opportunity it provides for you to kind of step back from what you'd otherwise be consumed by and just yeah. observe it. You know, there's this lovely phrase in education, isn't there, called metacognition, and yeah. it's that ability to just step back and go, "Whoa, look at, yeah. <laughs> look at the thought I just had there. That's really interesting." Yeah, um, and doing it in a way that's that's non-judgmental as well, just being curious about what's going on for you. Yeah, well, because teaching such a such a busy busy job, isn't it? And it, I think mindfulness for me, especially, made made space for me to like you say step back from all the the stuff surrounding teaching yeah. all the stuff that's piled on top yes. and really see kind of what was what I wanted to teach and how I wanted to teach and kind of get back to why I got into teaching in the first place really yeah that's so important isn't it because how many teachers do you know that went into teaching in order to fill out spreadsheets and <laughs> yeah. mark work and, and you know do do assessments I don't think many did no. most of them went in because they just love the teaching but it gets lost it does um, in the busyness of everything else that you're doing yeah. yeah I mean I know as well a lot of school staff that I've spoken to um, worry that the word well-being is kind of thrown about and used as part of a box ticking exercise yeah. but not really put into action what, have, you, have you had experience of this what do we need to be doing in schools to ensure that the focus is on well-being and it, that it's really happening and it's really working um, yes, I've seen it a lot, and um, and and I know that ninety nine point nine percent of the time it's done with the best intentions. Yeah. Um, but what gets in the way every single time is everything else that the school is having to manage. Mm. So when it's seen as just another thing they have to do, it does become a box ticking exercise, and it might be something that happens once a week, or once a term, or once a year. You know, some schools are, you know, they'll have. A, a well-being week yeah uh, you know when kids can go and do a yoga class at lunchtime or you know go and do mindful coloring in whatever that is yeah <laughs> um or they might do you know or a school might get somebody who'll just lead a breathing exercise once a week in an assembly or something yeah and while they're done with great intention it's not going to make any difference at all mm. so if schools really want to walk the talk they need to build it into everything they do mm. not just a once a week or a once a term or a once a year event and that's difficult you know because it requires you to step back and really look at what you're doing yeah so, I think people are scared to unravel that because yeah. it, it has to get more messy doesn't it to have to tidy it up almost it's 
I think well, it, people don't want yeah. to start that massive workload when they've already feel stressed, but actually in the end it's worth it. Yes, but it's interesting, isn't it? So when we're stressed, we cling to <laughs> what's going on because the, the, there's no space to even contemplate an alternative. Mm. So we do, it's the driven doing mode thing again, isn't it? You just keep on going. Yeah. Um, and it's an act of great bravery to then go, you know what, actually, we're just going to pause here a moment and we're going to step back and we're really going to have a look at this. Yeah. Um, but luckily, there are lots of models coming out now around what this can look like. So there's lots of schools who are doing great work in this area who are offering to share what's worked for them. Um, and and the other thing I'm very passionate about is that, again, start with the staff, because there's mm. no point in working hard to kind of get well-being part of the student's life at school if the staff are exhausted, ill, tearing their hair out. Yeah, you know, it's just not going to work. How do we do that? How do, you know, well-being for staff is such a a huge thing that's talked about at the moment. But how do we change the you know all of the guests that I've spoken to on this podcast? Kind of either been in teaching or no teachers, yeah. and they've either left teaching because they just haven't been able to kind of manage the workload. Yeah. How do we make what changes it we need to make? I think um, a big change has to be that it has to start with senior leadership teams mm. and they need to model what they're asking their staff to do. So if they're saying to staff, oh, you know, don't don't go sending emails in the evenings or at weekends. And then they, then they do anyway. Yeah. Um, you, you've got to you've just got to stop. And, you know, the, the feedback we've heard is that staff don't want an occasional yoga session they want to be able to go home early once a week yeah or they want a day once a month where um their free sessions really are protected so they can actually use their free periods to mm. do what they need to do in those free periods rather than being hijacked and, and having to go and cover something or have a meeting or you know it's it's, a, it's about bravery on the part of the senior leaders yeah just really saying right we're, we're really going to do this yes on a Nobody can be in school after 4pm on a Friday. Wouldn't that be amazing? And what it would There's, start as well if one school yeah. saw another school doing it. Yeah, and it's not just about, oh, we suggest you don't do this. It's like, you may not do this. Yeah. There's a, there's a school I heard of, not in this country, hmm. where at four o'clock every afternoon, the desks, which are supported on wires, get raised. I've seen that. That mm. looked amazing. I can't remember can't what country it was in. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> idea. Isn't that brilliant? Yeah. You've got no choice. You just got no choice. You have to go home. You have to, you know. And it removes that responsibility of, you know, you you worry. Obviously, your list never gets finished as a teacher, no. and you worry no. that because you haven't got these jobs done, you can't stop until they're done. But they're never yeah. done. So yeah. by kind of removing that option, it's taking the responsibility away of from that. It's like, well, I didn't, you know, that's I've got done as much as I can in my working hours, and that's. And then maybe we'd start to realise how much. Like too much work basically we've got too much work and people yeah. will start to see that because I think teachers quite often we finish all the jobs that we're given in time so people think that we're managing mm. and actually we need to start saying well that's not going to get done because yeah. I don't have the time and the, and the culture that that's that is is there I think because teachers just want to do the best they can yeah. for their students and their and their colleagues the culture is one of you know I can't say that I'm not coping because because that means I can't do my job properly and that's really important to me. Yeah. So just a, a culture where you can go, actually, yeah, I've really struggled, really struggled this week or this mm. month. 
uh, I am exhausted. Um, I'm not feeling great. Uh, I do need a bit of a break. Yeah. Um, it might be an urban myth, but I, I've heard about, you've probably heard about this as well, that in Australia they have mental health days where you can just call in and go, I'm having a mental health day. Wow. You don't have so to lie like, and like say, a I'm sick not very day, well. but yeah. Yeah. But you don't have to lie about it. You just say, I'm having a mental, I'm absolutely full to the brim. I'm having a mental health day. And it all comes down to trust, that kind of thing, doesn't it? Um, I mean, I was listening to an Action for Happiness talk um, last week. And they were yeah. saying how the Danish way of living and one of the biggest differences is they talk, uh, talked about was trust. Everyone yeah. trusts each other. And yeah. I think we're too scared to trust to say, well, if you take a mental health day, you need a mental health day. We kind of think, yeah. well, you're going to take advantage of that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And mm. yet we all need mental health days, don't we? Yeah. And not to take one actually increases the chance that you'll get ill and then you can't work anyway. Exactly. Mm. So it's about self-care, you know, it's the, it's in action, it's self-care in action. Yeah. Well, a lot, a lot of work to do, but there's so much positivity in there, I think, if kind of more and more people get these ideas and put them into practice, we just need mm. to kind of give people, like you say, the courage to be able to kind of step outside and do something a bit differently. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. As um, be brave. Be yeah, brave exactly. Well. Definitely, we've got to be brave. Mm. Um, as a parent's and teaching staff really if they want to find a school to work at that that has well-being as a priority what can they look out for so firstly as a parent looking for for their child in a school what you know you only get one visit perhaps yeah. even I don't even know what visits look like at the moment maybe they're virtual maybe they're not but what yeah. is what are the signs of a, a a school that has well-being at the heart of what it does well I think it's um it kind of ties in with what we were just talking about you need to be asking you know how is well-being built into the school day? Mm. Um, and if they say well, once a week we do this, or students have the option to do that, it's not about options. Everybody should be doing this. And yeah. the same for staff. You know, what, as a parent, you can say, what about staff well-being? What do you do there? Mm. You can ask to see their policies on this stuff, the well-being policy, because they should have one. Yeah. Um, and just make sure it's absolutely part of the day. And then... Obviously, you can usually get a little bit of a taste of, of what a school's like as you go around. If, if kids are looking down and powering on through, that's probably not a good sign. But if yeah. you've got kids who are open and say hello and, you know, kind of not in a kind of way that they've been drilled to do, but, mm. but just like, oh, hi, and they're smiling and they're hanging out and they're looking quite relaxed. Yeah, That's usually also quite a good sign. But definitely yeah. ask, you know. Where in the day does this happen and how often? Yeah, that's interesting, kind of the, looking at the um, the amount of it, because I would have said, you know, what what are they doing for well-being? And a lot of people would have accepted the answer of, oh, yeah, well, we do a well-being week or, um, you know, that. But, yeah, you're right. It has to be embedded in, in day-to-day life in the school, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. What um, On a kind of larger scale, what do the government need to be doing to ensure that schools kind of place well-being at the heart of what they do how long have we got on this call (laughs) (laughs) don't start shall we we Um, add (laughs) add an extra few hours i think yeah i think we need Um, a whole episode just for this one yes (laughs) so i'll tell you what the government shouldn't be doing yeah okay that's good is imposing this as another thing that schools have to do with no additional resources or time yeah that's what shouldn't be happening. Sadly, it is happening. 
Yeah. And as a result, as as you said earlier on, you know, the term well-being is being thrown around, but actually very often doesn't really have any meaning for anybody. Uh, certainly not on the ground. Mm. Um, so it's that there's some really positive signs coming out that, that the government and Ofsted and other kind of um, higher level organisations are acknowledging that a bit more attention to well-being and mental health is, is needed. Well, a lot more. Um, but it needs to sit alongside a broader shift in education. Yeah. So there's no point in saying, uh, yes, no, well-being is absolutely a central priority for us. If at the same time they're saying, oh, by the way, when your students come back, the first thing you should be doing is is exploring behaviour management strategies. <laughs> we won't say who said that, but we all know. Yeah. Um, you know, because they, they just don't sit alongside each other very well. No. So... So they need to be they need to be investing in this. They need to be investing so that schools can bring on board um, good quality training and additional staff mm. to help make this really work or relieve other staff who really want to do this job to to do it really, really well. Yeah. And, to be, and, and you know, that takes so much time planning, looking at the broader structure of the school day and the school week. Uh, listening to what people want there's a huge amount of research to be done on that stuff not just you should be doing this off you go yeah because you end up with you know I've approached teachers before trying to kind of make changes in schools and they look at you and and rightly so as if to say I can't take on yeah so we're worrying about well-being now is the kind of response that we get yeah and it's it's kind of we just keep we keep putting things onto them but not giving them any extra resources any extra time any extra staff and They just they just look exhausted when I talk to them about it. And when you've got that, it's not going to work, is it? It's just going to continue to break down because they can't. They're not genuinely bringing it into their day. They're adding it on because they've been told to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's and it is another thing, you know. And we know in teaching, there's another thing every kind of half term, and another thing, and another thing, and that's why mm. so many people are leaving the profession. Yeah. You know, newly qualified teachers, older teachers. Oh, yeah. it's so sad when you look when these amazing people who are bringing creativity and a genuine love for well-being, and you kind of there's so many people I know who have left teaching, and it is yeah. sad because, like you say, they're the people who we we all need to come together and be brave together to make that change. Yeah, and you know what? On a good day, isn't it? Teaching is the most wonderful job in the world. It really is, yeah. and it's one of the most important jobs in the world. Mm. You know, we're we're setting young people up for their future. Yeah. And so why why is it not being better resourced? Why is it not being better supported? Mm. And why isn't mental health and well-being at the heart of everything schools are doing? Because they don't have time and they don't have the resources. Yeah. Because I mean I would struggle to find any teacher or any any leadership member who would say, "Well, we don't care about child well-being." It's it's no, not that, is it? We've all got that at the at, in our hearts that we all want to help them as much as we can. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So um, we've we've kind of talked about mindfulness being more popular um, and it's more mainstream. Why do you think this is? A few reasons, I think. First of all, um, there's been a massive increase in the amount of research going on around mindfulness and the, and the research evidence coming out around mm. its benefits. And, and by that, I mean really good quality research, you know, yeah. kind of peer reviewed, published in journals and so on. And that's been that's grown exponentially since about 2000, um, when 
you know, some some very well respected academic institutions, including Oxford, um, Bangor, University of Massachusetts in the States. Yeah, were starting to use secular eight week programs and um, and and you know, in the UK in particular, mindfulness based cognitive therapy is is now recognised by the National Institute of Clinical Excellence. Yeah, and you can get it on the NHS. So it's you know it's, it's getting the thumbs up from the people who really know what they're talking about. Yeah. But in addition to that, has been a groundswell in interest because uh, very often it's being peddled as a quick fix for people's ills. Yeah. And at the moment, people are struggling. They're really suffering, and they're looking for anything that can support them. Mm. Um, and it's kind of a, on the side of this, though, kind of highly relevant is the fact that I did a. I was writing an article a few months ago and I thought I'm just going to do a quick check on Google to see how many research results you get for the word mindfulness. <laughs> and I typed it in and I got 250 million search wow. results. So it's definitely out there. <laughs> <laughs> and then you and then you look at the search results and lots of them are brilliant and yeah. really they have great integrity and it's all about teaching people really well and it's mm. well researched and uh, and then there's an awful lot of stuff out there that's peddling, you know, oh, become perpetually calm. Oh, never worry again. Sleep better. Oh, yeah. lose weight through mindfulness. Oh, wow. Um, become more attractive to oh, other people through mindfulness. Mindfulness will resolve your workplace problems. You know, it's and it's just making ridiculous claims that haven't been proven in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Um, and then just asking you to part with your money in oh order to achieve this goal. And and it's a real shame because that I think that's what people, the general public, think mindfulness is. It's about mm. being calm, relaxing, breathing exercises, none of which is true. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, never feeling any kind of worry again. And that's not, that's not the case at all. No, it's funny you say that, actually, because when I called um, my project Mindfulness for Learning... Um, everyone kind of assumed that the mindf- they imagined someone sitting there calmly with their eyes closed, mindfulness. And that wasn't what I was thinking when I created the name. I mm. was thinking about, like you say, being mindful when you're bringing up children, being mindful when you're teaching children, being mindful yeah. as a human being in the world that we're in. So it was a lot broader than that. But people were kind of confused by that. But I guess because we see mindfulness differently different people see it in different ways but how can we make sure that if we are passing with our money what do we need to look out for I mean the obvious ones about kind of weight loss and things I mean I never even knew that existed but how can we make sure that it's a a genuine place that we're handing our money over to um well the key signs are when they're just making categorical claims that really can't be proven like you will feel this you will experience that so just watch out for that Mm. but then there are great bodies that that are now overseeing these sorts of um courses in the uk or rather they they have a good sense of what a good quality course might look like yeah um so one is bamba right uh, the british association of mindfulness we can put the links up as well yeah yeah the other is the mindfulness network okay and they they offer really high quality training um and um bang university's done loads of work on mbsr and mbct courses they now work extensively with the mindfulness network oxford university mindfulness center yeah 
They've been amazing, BMT. actually. I've, they, f- through the pandemic, I've loved the talks on the, on a Wednesday. The Wednesday, yes. Yeah, I've seen they've you there. Been, yeah, <laughs> they've been really amazing. And the, amazing. the, the so first one was very emotional, I think, because everything shut down and then we had that first right. week. And I think so many people were just kind of letting go of lots of tears. And I think it was yeah. just that. It was so wonderful to be with so many people. Yeah. Mm. And, they're, and they're doing loads of um, lovely work now, offering free events and training for everybody including introduction brief introduction courses are coming along yeah. three sessions um so that's something to watch out for so you're a teaching partner for oxford mindfulness center are yeah. you teaching there at the moment is there because yes, are... i'm teaching i'm teaching their mbct for life courses yeah. and um i am training people to teach mbct for life courses and ah, um, lovely which is the training i'm hopefully going to be doing in september yay that's so good that's amazing i don't know if i'll be teaching you on that one but yeah that's great it's a really really lovely lovely course mm. um and then also we'll probably be one of the teaching team on the on the introduction courses that we're doing as well oh fantastic yeah and what what does mindfulness practice look like for you now i mean how many years have you been practicing mindfulness now Gosh, um, <laughs> you don't have to tell us if you don't want to. No, I'm just trying to work it out. Um, probably about going back to my regular practice. Probably yeah. about sixteen, seventeen years. Wow, and ha- and so has it changed, or it will have changed over time? But how much yeah. is it very different now? Your practice does it look different? I'm much kinder to myself about it, so mm. I give myself more choices around what I do. So there will be days as you know there are days when you're doing you sit down to do some practice and you and you just think oh gosh I'm too tired for this or yeah I'm really noticing that my mind wants to be somewhere else right now and you know and and you go well that's okay just do it anyway yeah (laughs) just like you know I don't really feel like cleaning my teeth right now but I know I have to so I'm going to do it anyway yeah um and and actually I, I find that analogy really helpful you know there's dental hygiene I often say to people you know do you do you clean your teeth every day most people do yeah so that's dental hygiene so mindfulness practice that's mental hygiene so can you can you bring a similar attitude towards that which is it's just something I do every day yeah that's so true and on the days when actually it's not going so well that's when you learn the most yeah that's when you really need it isn't it it's when you need it yeah absolutely Mm. it's when it's when you notice your have the the, your, your mind's habits and you notice um, how quickly you get distracted and how your mind will bring you all kinds of wonderful other things yeah. when you're trying to just do some breath training or attention training. Um, and so so to answer your question, I suppose it's changed in that I used to be really strict myself. You are going to sit down now for 40 minutes and not move yeah. every day, um, which was good and very good learning. But now I might go, well, actually, you know what? My back's sore. I'm going to do 20 minutes sitting and then I'm going to do a bit of a movement practice and yeah. actually... While I walk the dogs, I'm going to make sure I really bring full attention to what I'm doing there. So it's kind of like MBCT for Life. The course really encourages you to bring mindfulness into your everyday activities. Yeah. So again, it's not something you do once a day and that's it. Mm. It's actually part of your life. It's what is how you like you were saying. It's how you are and how you relate to your experiences through your day. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And I hope that in 16 years time. I will still be doing my mindfulness practice. So yeah, yeah. Thank sure you, you so much, Claire, for coming on and talking to me. It's just been so lovely to kind of go That's over everything pleasure. with you. No, absolute pleasure. Thank lovely you. to talk to you again. 
So much to go away and think about from my conversation with Claire. We seem to be onto something with mindfulness and well-being, but we do need to take caution with our use of the words, ensuring that they come from a sincere desire to make definite and long-lasting change, changing how we operate in day-to-day life rather than using it as a quick sticking plaster. This will ensure we have a genuine effect on our own well-being, but also those around us and those we teach. If you would like to take a look at some of the websites that Claire recommends, you can find all the links on the episode summary. You will also find a link to both the Oxford Mindfulness Centre and the Mindfulness in Schools Project websites to find out more about what they offer and more information on Claire too. A big thank you again to Claire for sharing her time with me. It really was an honour to have her on the podcast. And a big thank you to you, the Mindfulness for Learning community, for listening and learning with us. Should you have any requests, questions or inquiries, please email me at sophie at mindfulnessforlearning.com or you can find us on Twitter on at mforlearning. Thanks for listening and see you next time for what will be our final episode in series one.